Chapter Twelve of A Woman's War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Woman's War by Warwick Deeping. Chapter Twelve. The surest test of a man's efficiency is to leave him in a responsible post with nothing to trust save his own skill and courage. Young doctors, like raw soldiers, are prone to panic and your theoretical genius may bungle over the slitting of a whitlow, though he be the possessor of numberless degrees. Mere book-law never instilled virility into a man, and Frederick Inglis, B.A., A.M., B.S.C., D.P.H., gilded to the last button with the cleverness of the schools, was an amiable fellow whose cultured and finicking exterior covered unhappy voids of self-distrust it had been very well for him so long as he could play with a few new drugs look quietly clever and leave the grimness of the responsibility to murchison dr inglis had found private practice a pleasant pastime he had come from the laboratories full to the brim with the latest scientific sensations and a preconceived pity for the average sawbones in the provinces he boasted a brilliant air so long as he was second in command it was possible to pose behind the barrier of another man's strength. That same Saturday night Murchison's highly educated assistant had been dragged out of bed at two in the morning and taken in a bumping milk-cart to a farm some five miles north of Roxton. His youth had been flouted on the very threshold by a stern, keen-eyed woman who had expressed herself dissatisfied with the offer of a juvenile opinion dr inglis had blushed and rallied his dignity dr murchison had entrusted the practice to him what more could a mere farmer's wife desire above in a big bed dr inglis discovered a fat man writhing with what appeared to be a prosaic and violent colic a simple case perhaps to the lay understanding but abdominal diagnosis may be a nightmare to a surgeon it is like feeling for a pea through the thickness of a pillow Two straight-backed, hard-faced, and very awesome ladies stood at the bottom of the bed, and watched Dr. Inglis with sceptical alertness. The assistant fumbled, stammered, and looked hot. The women exchanged glances. The man's personal fitness is soon gauged in a sick-room. "'Well, doctor, what's your opinion?' The challenge was given with a tilt of the nose and a somewhat suggestive sniff. "'Abdominal colic, madam!' The pain is often very violent. And uh, what may abdominal colic be due to? Dr. Inglis bridled at the tone and attempted the part of Zeus. Many causes, very many causes. Mr. Baxter has never had such an attack before, I presume? Never. Yes, how are you feeling, sir? Bad, mighty bad, came the voice from the feather pillows. The two austere women seemed to grow taller and more aggressive. "'Do you think you understand the case, doctor?' "'Madam!' "'I wish Dr. Murchison had come himself. My husband has such faith in him.' Dr. Inglis grew hot with noble indignation. "'Just as you please,' he said with hauteur, yet looking awed by the tall women beside the bed. "'My qualifications are as good as any man's in Roxton.' The conceit failed before those two hard and Calvinistic faces. "'I believe in experience, sir. No offence to you.' 
"'Then you wish me to send for Dr. Murchison?' "'I do.' And the theoretical youth experienced guilty relief, despite the insult to his age and dignity. Sunday morning came with a flood of gold over Marley Down. The greens and purples were brilliant beyond relief. A blue haze covered the distant hills. Woodland and pasture glimmered in the valleys. The faint chiming of the bells of Roxton stirred the air as Kate Murchison walked the garden before the cottage, looking like one who had been awake all night beside a sick-bed. Her face betrayed lines of exhaustion, a dulling of the natural freshness, streaks of shadow under the eyes. She had that half-blind expression, the expression of those whose thoughts are engrossed by sorrow, the trick of seeing without comprehending the significance of the things about her. She turned suddenly by the gate and stood looking over the down. The very brilliancy of the summer colouring almost hurt her tired eyes. A familiar sound drowned the Roxton chiming as she listened, and brought a sharp twinge of anxiety to her face. Rounding the pine woods, the rakish outline of her husband's car showed up over the banks of gorse between the cottage and the high road. The machine came panting over the down, leaving a drifting trail of dust to sully the sunlight. Catherine caught her breath with impatient dread. This day of all days, when defeat was heavy on her husband, could they not let him rest, if these selfish sick folk only knew? Dr. Inglis's gold-rimmed pince-nez glittered nervously over the fence. He was a spare, boyish-looking fellow, with twine-coloured hair, weak eyes, and a mouth that attempted resolute precision. Catherine hated him for the moment as he lifted his hat and opened the gate with a deprecating and colourless smile. Dr. Inglis had the air of a young man much worried, one whose self-esteem had been severely ruffled, and who had been forbidden sleep and a hearty breakfast. "'Good morning, a mean thing, I'm sure, to bother Dr. Murchison, but really—' Catherine met him, looking straight and staunch, in contrast to the theorist's faded feebleness. "'What is the matter?' "'Mr. Baxter, of Boland's Farm, is seriously ill. An obscure case. His wife wishes—' Catherine foreshadowed what was to come. The assistant appeared to have suffered at the hands of anxious and nagging relatives. "'Well?' "'A serious case, I'm afraid. "'I'm sure Dr. Murchison would not wish me to assume all the responsibility. "'The wife, Mrs. Baxter, is rather an excitable woman.' "'His apologetics would have been amusing at any other season. "'Catherine bit her lip and ignored the limp youth's deprecating and sensitive distress. "'They wish to see my husband?' "'Yes, I must suggest, Mrs. Murchison. "'I understand the matter perfectly.' Dr. Murchison cannot come. She was bold, nay, aggressive, and the theorist looked blank behind his glasses. Am I to infer... Dr. Murchison is not well, and she hesitated, groping fiercely for excuses. He has had, I think, some kind of tomain poisoning. Yes, he is better now and asleep. I cannot have him disturbed. "'Indeed, I am excessively sorry. May I—' She saw the proposal quivering on his lips, and beat it back ere it was uttered. "'Thank you, no. You had better call in Dr. Hicks. He will advise you temporarily. Dr. Murchison will be able to resume work, I hope, to-morrow. If the case is very urgent—' "'Thank you, no.' Dr. Inglis tugged at his gloves. "'I will send over word,' 
he said dejectedly. "'Thank you. You sympathise, I am sure.' "'Of course. And being a nice youth, he showed his consideration by retreating and buttoning his coat up over his burden of incompetence. The physical prostration of a strong man who has sinned against his body is as nothing to the bitter humiliation of his soul. Ethical defeat is the most poignant of all disasters.' Like an athlete who has strained heart and lungs only to be beaten, he feels that anguish of exhaustion, that miserable sense of impotence, the conviction that his strength has been given, of no avail. Spiritual defeat has its more subtle agonies. In some such overwhelming of the soul, the man may turn his face like Hezekiah to the wall, and refuse to be comforted because of his own shame. To Catherine, her husband's awakening anguish had been pitiable in the extreme. He had lain like one wounded to the death, refusing to be comforted or to be assured of hope. Slowly, as she sat by him and held his hand, he had told her everything, blurting out the confession with a sullen yet desperate self-hate. The very pathos of her trust in him, the divine quickness in her to forgive, had been as girdles of thorn about his body. What had he done to justify her love? Disgraced and humiliated her in this haven of rest her hands had made for him. To appreciate the full irony of life, a man has but to be unfortunate for, perhaps, three days. It was about four in the afternoon when Catherine, sitting beside her husband's bed, heard the unwelcome panting of the car. The man Gage had driven fast from Boland's farm, he had a letter from Dr. Inglis, an urgent message, so he had been told. Catherine met him at the gate, and took the letter to her husband. "'A message, dear, from Dr. Inglis.' He reached for it with a hand that trembled, his eyes faltering from her face. She sat down on the bed, watching him silently as he tore open the envelope and read the letter. "'Dear Murchison, please come over at once, if possible.' Hicks has diagnosed acute internal strangulated hernia. He has been called off to a midwifery case. The relatives are getting out of hand. I think an immediate operation will be necessary. I have been to Lombard Street and got the instruments together. Inglis. The jerky, straggling sentences betrayed the theorist's loss of nerve and self-control. It was evident that the gentleman with the gilded degrees was in no enviable panic. "'Well, dear?' She bent over him and touched his forehead. "'I shall have to go,' he said somberly. "'Go? But you are not fit.' He sat up in bed, looked at her, and gave a wry and miserable smile. "'If I had not been such an infernal fool, the last time, Kate, I swear.' She caught the letter and read it through. "'Inglis is a miserable thing to lean on. "'Don't blame the youngster. At least he is sober.' She winced, as though his self-condemnation hurt her, and surrendering her fortitude of a sudden, broke out into tears. Murchison looked at her helplessly, feeling like a man bound and chained by the shame of his own manhood. He felt himself unworthy to touch her, too much humiliated even to offer comfort. The very sincerity of his self-disgust drove him to action. He sprang out of bed and began to dress. Catherine, still sobbing, went to the window and strove to overcome the shuddering weakness that had seized her. 
her husband's determination appeared to increase at the expense of her surrender it was as though they had exchanged moods in a moment and that the wife's tears had given the man courage kate she leaned against the window and brushed her tears aside with her hand forgive me dear i was a fool an accursed fool never again trust me he touched her arm appealingly like an awed lover who fears to offend catherine turned her head and looked at him her courage shining through her tears your words hurt me you called yourself a drunkard no no you are not that oh my beloved i need you now and you must go his arms were round her in an instant wife look up god help me i will conquer this curse how can i fail with you never again swear it never it was a trick of the brain a damned piece of moral vanity and i am a man who advises others she turned and standing before the glass pinned on her hat and threw her dust cloak round her i will come with you where home to the children and she gave a great sob mrs graham can look after the cottage you will want me at home wife i want you always End of chapter 12